Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast contains content of a sensitive nature that may be upsetting to some listeners. Hi, I'm Narelda Jacobs, and this is a special presentation for 10 News First Person. It is my great pleasure to be sitting across from Kate Doak. Kate, you are an inspiration to so many people, and I'm pinching myself that you're here. Wow, what an introduction, Narelda. <laughs> and also, what do you do at 10? Okay, um, I'm a researcher here, so I do a lot of different things from chasing up facts and uh, figures through to finding out interesting stories on politicians and sports people and pretty much nearly everything under the sun. It's one of those fun job descriptions where you can literally make it your own. If you're willing to put yourself out there, take a little bit of a risk, we're given the opportunity to explore who we are, but to also explore the stories that come up. Talk about exploring ourselves. That's exactly what we're going to be doing with this chat. And I think now is a really good time to ask for the blessing of the elders past, present and emerging on the land on which we're meeting today. We're, we're on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation. And uh, I would just like to ask for their blessing and, and their guidance for us to find the right words that give it justice, I guess. And I would also ask for everybody listening to pay respect to the elders on the country on which you are joining in on this conversation as well. Kate, leading up to this chat, I've actually had a quite a heavy heart because I know we're going to get really personal here. And I wanted to ask you, how do you feel firstly? And what sort of self-care do you do to prepare your heart or steal your heart for what we're about to talk about? Personally, right here and right now, I feel very comfortable because I know that with the topics that we're going to be talking about, which focus quite heavily on the LGBTI community, but also the different demographics within that community as well, because we're not uniform. Mm. We're from so many different backgrounds. So for me personally, I went for a walk. I made myself feel and look great as well. And you do. I've also just gone, well, you know what? If this helps somebody, if this helps somebody realise that they're not alone, mm -hmm. that there's resources out there, that they can talk about different things, for me it's worth it. And that, for me, helps me to go, well, you know what, I can wear my heart on my sleeve with a bit of this. And we were actually talking about that just before we came in here. I, I asked, is anything off limits? And your reply was? Go hard. <laughs> Literally go for it. And there's a good reason for that as well. Because I trust you as a friend and as a colleague. You're actually one of the people who inspired me. Oh, wow. Kate, thank you so much. I'm so appreciative of you saying that. Let's get into it, shall we? Mardi Gras is a really exciting time of year. 
for a lot of people and not just members of the LGBTIQA plus community, but for allies as well. Did you always feel included in celebrations of Mardi Gras? Wow, fantastic question straight off. Yes and no. Like, um, I'm originally from the New England region of New South Wales. So Sydney, when I was growing up, was a good seven or eight hours drive away for me. And there just weren't any resources whatsoever up in that particular region for anyone from the LGBTI community, let alone like a trans person such as myself. And as a result, yes, I did feel left out, but it wasn't an intentional left out. It was due to the the geographical factors, really, and the fact that there just weren't and there still aren't like many resources for, for trans kids in regional Australia in general. I think that that's changing, but it's not changing fast enough. But in regards to festivals such as Mardi Gras, most people think that Mardi Gras is just a parade. I think that when you're actually in Mardi Gras itself, like the entire festival, it's impossible to feel left out now. <laughs> yes. What sort of time frame were you talking about then? How far back were you going when you were reflecting on that time? Oh, wow. Um, back into the, um, the 1990s and early 2000s, that's when I was going through high school and also through the early stages of university as well, because I went to university at the University of New England and a lot of people give rural universities a bad rub. Yeah. In that particular case, I don't think that, like, UNE deserved it. Just an entire culture there uh, with the residential hall that I was living in, which was Page College, that was superb with my transition. When I was talking with different people there to begin with, they were going like, we don't know exactly what you're going through, but we know you're going through something tough. You're one of us. Remember that. That's amazing. I think that we need more of that, not just at universities, but at schools and workplaces. Because when somebody can bring their whole selves to a situation, it has a huge impact. Yes. They perform better. They're able to speak more confidently. Yeah, yep. And that underpins pretty much everything. That underpins the whole BLM movement as well. And it came out during Jane Elliott's famous blue eyes, brown eyes exercise. You know, that's exactly that sort of thing. When you boost people with self-confidence and self-esteem, they perform really well. But you didn't experience that sort of compassion for your whole life, did you? What was your childhood like? Different parts of my childhood were great, like anything to do with horses, for example. It was just so much fun. Like, I could be myself in many ways because there were different things I could tell my horse that I couldn't tell anyone else. Horses, at least the ones that I had anyway, they were great listeners. And every so often, they'd also give you a little message with the way that they were acting as well. Like, basically, they'd either go like, okay, I want to rub. I know that you're feeling down and all of that, so I want to rub. And they'll just literally nearly knock you over with kindness and all of that, like just by rubbing you with their head and all of that. So they were reading your emotions? They were reading your emotions. There's different things that animals can pick up within us. I think that we can't necessarily at different times pick up about ourselves. The animals that I was around at the time, because I was a farm kid, I was on horses like every day growing up. I, I just absolutely adored it. But being around animals in that particular way, I think it's one of the things that saved me because I was suicidal quite heavily as a kid growing up. At what age? <sighs> First attempt um, would have been, I think, about seven or eight. Oh, I'm so sorry, Kate. As I said, like, I'm actually 
happy to be talking about this right now because this is the sort of conversation that like if a kid listens to it and they're currently going through it regardless of whether they're trans or they're lesbian or gay or bi or intersex or as you just mentioned like in regards to different cultural backgrounds with black lives matter if they can hear that things do get better and they can be shown that yes they do get better that has an impact not just on the right here and right now for them but it can be the thing that changes their entire life for them so that particular time it was hard don't get me wrong it was hard and i was lucky to get through it but if it helps somebody else i i'm willing to go there now if tell me if you don't want to answer this question but what pushes a seven or eight year old to the edge literally when you can't be yourself when you feel that you are so cornered in that you are literally a um Let's say a star, for example, being pushed into a a triangle hole. Okay. Just the pressures that that puts on you you emotionally. You you doubt yourself. You go like, am I ever going to be loved by anyone? Am I normal? Am I able to see a future for myself? I did not see that. I did not see it at all for quite some time because I didn't feel safe. I did not feel safe whatsoever. And that impacts everything. Did you tell anyone? No, no. I would have if I could have, if I had felt that it was safe to do so. But a part of it is also like, um, if you can't see something, you can't be it. And that's just as applicable to trans people as what it would be for anyone. And I mean, like with what you've gone through personally as well, you're a lesbian woman from an Indigenous Australian background, and you've also come from a very rigid Christian environment as well. Your story is so powerful as well, Narelda. Yeah, my dad was a reverend of the Uniting Church. He passed away a couple of years now, and my mum is also a pastor, and uh, we're from an evangelical kind of background, fundamentalist Christian background. I grew up thinking and, and believing because it had been drummed into us that homosexuality was of, of the devil, that gays were going to hell, that AIDS was brought by God as punishment for gays. And so I buried my sexuality so deep inside me that I didn't even realise that I could live my authentic self. And so I, I went through the motions. I, I had a boyfriend. I fell pregnant to that boyfriend. At the age of 18, 19, I was married and had the baby and it was a shotgun wedding. The wedding happened actually when I was yeah, 18 and my mum pretty much organised the, the wedding and wanted to have it happen before I was showing. And so six months after the wedding, then Jade came along. That was incredible that Jade came out of this uh, tumultuous time of my life because she's incredible. It was a really difficult two years for an 18, 19-year-old. And then I was in the public service and met some lesbians there who opened my eyes to the fact that they were just normal, nice people. And I didn't think that they were going to be going to hell. And one of those friends then became my, my girlfriend. And we were together for 16 years after that. And I was closeted for three years of it to my family until I didn't want to be that person anymore and I needed to lift the burden off my shoulders and came out to my mum. My mum was actually one of my teachers as well. Oh, wow. 
small country town, when your mum's a teacher at a local school, you're obviously going to be going to the local school. And my parents, ever since I came out to them, they have been phenomenal. Looking back now, I probably could have talked with them, but I didn't feel that. As I've grown older, I've realised that my parents, they're people who have always been willing to listen and talk with us with respect. A lot of parents don't do that. A lot of kids don't have parents who do that with them. When you don't have that, who else can you talk to? There's not many people. Have you spoken to them about that later in life and asked, what would you have done if if I had had this conversation with you when I was seven? I have, actually. My mum said to me, she said, I I wouldn't have treated you any differently. I would have treated you with the same level of love and kindness. She said, I would have worried a lot more because she said, I could pick up back then. A lot of gay and lesbian people at that time in rural New South Wales, of all places, New England region, Tamworth, country music, she just went, even for them, it wasn't safe. So she said, I would have worried a lot more, but I still would have loved you just as much. And that's really beautiful. What was your school life like? Oh, okay. Um, That particular one was quite interesting at times because my school year, it was, I think, about 15, 20 kids. In total, there were 120 kids for the entire school. So you literally had to be engaging with the people that were bullying you at the same time, whether you liked it or not, every single class, every um, single lunchtime, every single morning tea, afternoon break, after school as well to a reasonable extent. You just can't escape. I only went to that particular one until the start of year seven. But like throughout that time, I had my head shoved into bubblers so that I actually had a couple of my teeth fracture. I had uh, my hands literally whipped with um, a metal chain. Oh, Kate, how old were you? I would have been about nine at that particular point in time. Were people watching this? People did see it happen and the, the teachers did pick up on the bullying and all of, all of that. And part of that was because the teachers, don't get me wrong, They were doing as good a job as what they could do at the time, but they didn't have the training to pick up on the really intricate levels of bullying. I was copying it in more than one way as well, because I was presenting like, um, I mean, I was trying to be my authentic self as much as what I could, and the little bit that was shining through, that was enough to trigger the bullies. So you were drinking water from the water fountain. Another kid came along. And shoved me quite heavily physically shoved me like pushed me all of these different things they were recorded at the time as well that's the type of situation that like a lot of kids have had to be dealing with and I was dealing it both in regards to the fact that I was presenting like at least in my own mind in a feminine manner at the same time I was also having to have to deal with it like as being a teacher's kid as well because my mum should discipline a kid out in the playground, well, guess who uh, they'd go and pick on in order to get back at my mum. So there's those sorts of elements that come into it as well. At the same time, though, I don't want it to come across it like my childhood was, was nothing but negatives. I had so much fun while I was growing up as well, and a lot of the things that actually helped me get through actually helped me to, to get into the mindset where I could pursue a career in media as well. So there's positives in the darkness. If you're willing to go, well, I know that this isn't going to last forever. I know that I'm going to get through it. 
if you're then able to go, well, okay, how can how can I take this and make it so that in the future nobody has to deal with this? That is that's strength and resilience right there. The injuries that you suffered as a result of the bullying landed you in hospital, surely. Close. Pretty close. Like um, when I got to high school, it actually continued because a number of the boys in my year, and like this is now a larger school that I was going to, and I was uh, in a science um, lab one time, I had chemical powders thrown into my face. Did that burn your skin? It was more of a, not a reactive powder, but like one of the, the ones you've literally got to stick up, I think, on top of a flame or something like that in order to get it to actually react. But like to have it go into your eyes and you just go like, oh my golly gosh, like oh gosh, that stings. And then further from that, this involving like the same group of kids, one other time like I was going into a classroom and I was shoulder charged into the door frame so hard that like my wrists bore the brunt of it and went straight into the door latch. That happened not once but twice, fractured both of them at the time. But again, the teachers weren't trained to deal with that extent of bullying. Yeah. I don't think in a lot of cases many of them are. Now, we're seeing changes over the past like decade, for example, is one of the key reasons why programs like Safe Schools was brought in. And a lot of people say, oh, that's uh, the manipulation, brainwashing and all of that. It's not. Teachers were actually requesting programs like that so they could go like, we are seeing this particular type of bullying with kids across the board. We need the training in order to address it. And it was identified that LGBTI kids were copying some of the worst bullying across the board. And we're at Purple as well. That's a fantastic uh, organisation that's targeting exactly that, providing support for school children that are going through things and schools that need the support as well to be able to deal with it. Were there any consequences for those children? Um, yes and no. There were certain restrictions as to basically what the teachers could do. I mean, there's only so many times that you can uh, take somebody out of a classroom or threaten them with suspension. There's a very fine line that teachers have got to walk nowadays. And I don't feel as if they're properly being supported either. Yeah. Both from the various different departments of education, they are not getting the training that they need. They are not getting the resources that they need in order to help those kids. And it could be just as as much like an Indigenous kid or a kid from any racial or cultural background that is subjected to that bullying. If the teachers aren't getting the resources that they need in order to address it, to make it so that it doesn't even arise in the first place, how are we going to move forward with, with any of it? That's the question that the politicians need to answer. Yeah. It's something that they've been talking about like for so long, but you'd never see any real action on it. It needs to be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. Schools need to be a safe zone for everyone. And that's not just an ideological thing as well. It is a practical issue. Those different instances that I referenced a couple of minutes ago, they hurt. How long is it until somebody gets killed or somebody, in some cases, we already know this has happened, takes their own life as a result of that. There's such a a tragedy with that. What sort of impact did those experiences have on your path to transitioning? (sighs) They slowed it down quite a bit. 
because when you don't feel safe within yourself, you you can't come out. You can't feel as if you can you can trust anyone in order to get the help that you need. Did you feel like everybody was out to get you? Yeah, yeah. There were many times where I felt that the only being that wasn't out to get me was my own horse. Now I understand why you had so much comfort from this animal that could read your emotions. Yeah, well, I mean, like Aqua, he was he was phenomenal as a horse. He was one of the, the gentlest creatures that I've ever encountered, but also one of the smartest as well, because he'd pick up, as I said earlier on, like when you were feeling down. We used to have so much fun with show jumping in particular. It's an emotional release. Yeah, which is really interesting. Like you, you talked about how you grew up in a loving household and, and you mentioned that, and, and so did I. I can't fault the love that I had and still have for my family. My relationship with my mum, she's a godsend. She, she's just one of those really beautiful people. She doesn't give herself enough credit. She's been kind whenever I've, I mean, like ever since I came out to her, she's, she's been constantly talking with me about like what I'm going through, checking in. It's almost as if our relationship has been taken to such a higher level. We've just got that communication with each other that we didn't have before. Like, don't get me wrong, like we were talking quite openly and honestly before then as well, obviously not in regards to my gender dysphoria. But like, um, I feel blessed to have the parents that, that like I've got because they care. Can I ask, did they know of your attempts? No, no. That's another thing that like I, I kept pretty, pretty quiet at the time. Because again, like I, I didn't feel even within the medical community up there in the, the New England region that there was sufficient support up there for it. And at the same time, I think that the fact that I was constantly doing things that, that would then pick me back up, like I was doing horse riding, I was doing a lot of reading, I was watching quite a bit of rugby as well, like, because as you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong Wallabies fan and yeah, just different things like that helped me to get through. But also the fact that I was intelligent enough to see that, okay, things may be bad right now. They're not always going to be that way. And I think that that was the thing that flipped it back over for me because when I found myself in those negative mindsets, like the really, really deep and dark ones, I was then able to just have a look around. Like the farm that I lived on, beautiful. When you have those visual reminders as well that there is beauty in this world, that can sometimes be the tipping point. I did have those attempts at different times. I was lucky that they were spread at least a few years apart. If they were ones where I was having them monthly, as some people do, or even more frequent than that, it would have had obviously a far different outcome. Because again, we don't have, even today, the sufficient resources to address issues like that in regards to mental health. We would like to think that the world has improved in such a dramatic way that, like you say, the support is there now, especially in regional communities and and even in inner cities. But it's not, is it? We're not there yet. No, and I don't think that we're there yet on multiple issues because, I mean, 
with the experiences that I had growing up, at least there were there were different times where I could I could portray something that I that I wasn't and just escape. A lot of kids, a lot of kids, and it's not just in rural areas, don't have that particular opportunity. Like a lot of indigenous LGBTI kids. And they're the ones that I often feel the most concerned for. Yeah. And the reason for that is, well, in my experience anyway, is because colonisation. Everything goes back to colonisation for First Nations people. And because there was such a strong influence by religion, Christianity, missionaries came to save the people. My dad was, uh, was stolen from his, he was a stolen generation survivor, and he was taken from his family at the age of uh, nine and put into a mission run by missionaries. And so the spirituality of his culture was, they weren't allowed to practice it. They were living off country, you know, and so that's why culture was stolen from those children as well. And then those values and beliefs continue into their adulthood and into their parenting. And my dad was a reverend of the Uniting Church, as I, as I said. And so that's why Christianity has such a big impact in Aboriginal families and, and Islander families. We grew up going to church and we know all the hymns and all the, the Sunday school songs and all that sort of stuff. So I, getting back to my own personal experience, you know, as a three years into a relationship with a woman, Marion, who I love very much and still do, she's my best friend. We've been through a lot together. And it was with her encouragement because I didn't want her to be in the closet either. And I just wanted to be true to myself. So I plucked up the courage to sit my mum down. If you need a picture of who my mum is, think of Margaret Court. My mum's name is Margaret and she's about the same age as Margaret Court. Margaret Court is a pastor, as is Margaret Jacobs, a pastor. They look the same. <laughs> They're about the same age. They have the same name. And so I sat my mum down and, and told her and said, you know, Marion's more than just a friend. She's my girlfriend. And my mum said, well, how long has this been going on for? And I said, three years. And her reaction was, well, that's a lot to undo, isn't it? I just kind of sat there and she, we both started crying. And she said, lovey, I'm never going to be able to accept this, but I will always love you. And at that time, and actually throughout the rest of my adult life, that's how we've been living. That's how we've been existing. It's kind of been a bit of a coexistence and we continue having a relationship, but we just don't talk about relationship things with partners, with my partner. My beautiful girlfriend Stevie is always welcome at my mum's house and my mum will now ask how Stevie is, which is coming a long way. I can put my arm around Stevie, which is coming a long way since more than 20 years ago when I came out to my mum, you know. So it's, it's been really small steps, but I know the acceptance will never be there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
what was it like when you were able to live your authentic life for the first time? Oh, it was like it was just like something out of a dream. Yep, it's a freedom. Yeah, because you can think in ways that you've never given yourself permission to think before. And that liberates every single part of your mind. You're not looking over your shoulder all the time. You're not going, where's the next punch going to come from? Where's the next harsh word going to come from? Because if you can feel that you're fully able to be yourself, you're not going to be as worried about that sort of situation arising. At least that's what my general experience from it has been. People say that coming out's a phase and all of that kind of stuff or being transgender is a phase. Why would you want it to be? Why would you want to do that if it was just a phase, you know, like because it's it's such a transition, you know, and it's it's not something that you would ever do for attention. I always struggle when I hear that people are saying it's a phase. It's just really offensive. It is. It is. But that's the mindset that some people have got. Oh, yeah, it's a phase. You're going to get through it. And that's why people go, oh, yeah, we've got to have different things like Mm. conversion therapy where people go, oh, yeah, like it's just a phase. You're going to get through it. Oh, we can help you with that. And all of those other different things that occur in that regard. It's not just from a religious perspective that this happens as well. We've been seeing it happen quite frequently over the course of the past couple of years in regards to transgender kids, for example. People have been saying, oh yeah, it's just a phase, you're going to get through it. A lot of kids don't. The number of kids who who attempt suicide or have considered suicide as a result of their gender dysphoria is astronomical. Like 80%, and this is from a study that was done a couple of years ago, I think it was by the University of La Trobe down there in Victoria. They said that about 83% of transgender kids contemplate suicide or self-harm as a result of how society treats them. 37% actually attempt it. That's, that's such a huge number. So when you say that this is an issue... Like, this is an issue. This is something that needs to be addressed. And I think that on the the legislative side of things, because we've just seen in Victoria, we've seen comprehensive legislation put forward banning any form of conversion therapy for LGBTI kids. And if memory serves me correctly, it's quite comprehensive in regards to adults as well. Because there are, there are adults who check themselves into conversion therapy and, and seek conversion therapy out for themselves. Yeah. And it's currently only outlawed in Victoria just most recently, the ACT and Queensland, but all other states, it's completely legal. That's correct. And Tasmania is looking at changing their, their legislation at the moment as well. The other states, though, there, there hasn't been much of a conversation in regards to that so far. We've been seeing a detailed conversation in places like New Zealand, for example, and also different states within uh, the United States of America and different parts of Canada and a few other different places around the world. But it's an issue which is going to continue to come up. When you were transitioning, was there anybody in the media that you were looking at? Did you have like a a role model? Wow. Um, There were a couple of people, such as um, Carlotta. She said on a few different occasions that, like, the only career that she could see for herself was as a showgirl. In the 1960s, the 1970s and 1980s, 
that's a, a pretty relevant, pretty accurate thing for her to have said, just given the, the social climate that we've seen here in Australia. And she was out and proud yeah. and continues to be. And yeah, like, she does. God love her for it. For <laughs> it. But like, um, so many people weren't out of the closet at that particular point in time. Professor Lynn Conway, for example, she's one of the top, top computer scientists of the past probably about 60 years. She transitioned back in the, um, the 1960s. She was working with IBM at that particular point mm. in time. She was fired yep. as a result of uh, coming out as to who she really was. And as a result of that, she had to rebuild her entire life, her entire career. She ended up working with DARPA in the United States um, uh, Department of Defence, right at the height oh, of the Cold wow. War. Yeah. The more that I found out about like people such as her, for example, that made me think, well, yeah, I mean, there, there are positive role models out there. There were certainly negative portrayals of trans people, and it was kind of attached to sort of mental health issues in the media, in movies and TV shows. and Yeah, like in a lot of different TV shows and a lot of different uh, movies, for example, and including like some of the, the most prominent TV shows of our time, such as MASH. There were representations of trans people as being completely and utterly like deranged. Same thing in regards to gay and lesbian people as well. Well, I mean, people often think of, I'm using quotation marks here, air, air quotation marks, homosexual men as pedophiles. Exactly. So MASH is, is one example, and we all grow up watching MASH. Yeah. So if that's the only kind of portrayal that you see. Yeah, and there were other ones as well. There were also a lot of stories that were being reported on at the time. Like there's one particular episode of Four Corners that... I saw a recording of it like um, a few years back and it's still stuck in my mind. The language that they were using in relation to trans people, the representation that like, it, it was just mind blowing that people could think, well, okay, we're going to totally rip this person's life to shreds and portray them as being some form of like, um, like deviant. And you just go like, why would anyone want to do that to a, to a fellow human being? And it's not even something that only happened in the olden days. It's happening now with, you know, J.K. Rowling is a classic example of the book that has just been written, where a, a cis man is, as it's been descri described as, cross-dressing to become a serial killer. Is that, is that correct? To be a serial killer, but to also have um, access to women in women's only spaces. Interesting that you bring that up because there has just been a social media battle about one of the women's baths uh, in Sydney where they had they stipulated that you needed to have surgery before you could enter the women's baths and there was such a big outcry that they were forced to change it. Do you think it came from a, a place of, you know, a, a good place of changing the policy or that, did they do it with some education there for the people that had created that policy in the first place? I have looked at the MacIver baths on a number of different occasions in the past. There are a number of people within that organisation who have been wanting to get things right. 
Okay. And the same, it's the same thing like with um, Grandwick Council, which manages the MacIver Baths as well. And for people not in Sydney, the MacIver's Baths is one of those classic Sydney ocean baths built into rocks. And so it's outside. It's, it's an outside space that's private. It's a women's only space so that uh, people of all faiths you know, can come and, and swim safely without the, the eyes of the world on them. Yeah, and it's been used in that particular manner for well over 100 years as well, if memory serves me correctly. And as a result of that, I think that a lot of people have become quite quite reluctant of change, quite wary of it, as a result of like um, just not having that level of, of connection with transgender people more broadly. I think that because the MacIver Barbs issue, it's come up a few different times over the past few years. Right. And with the, the most recent discussion that's been had on this, most of the people who have been involved have been quite respectful from what I've seen. That's quite a huge change. And the policy has been overturned, which is fantastic. So, you know, well done. But um, I think the, the community is saying it doesn't kind of go far enough because it needs to come with an apology that it was there in the first place, which is that's a little way to go yet. And uh, there's still the door is open for an apology. What about trans in sport? That's been an area, elite sport, and probably not even elite sport, all levels of sport, community sport, has been some, something that trans women in particular have felt excluded from. Yeah, that's been a hot topic for quite a number of years now, though in the past, probably about two years in particular, it's really hit a fever pitch, both in regards to the different rules and regulations in regards to um, professional level sports, but also like the, the level of inclusion at grassroots level as well, because sport in general, it is one of those things that it's a great equaliser. It'll help people like um, be able to connect with one another, but it also lets you connect with yourself. And that's something that so many trans people have never had an opportunity to really do. If they were heavily involved in sport before their transition, a lot of them like completely and utterly stopped playing it once they transition because they haven't felt they're accepted. They've not been allowed to as well. There's many cases where it's gone to a, a governing body to decide whether a trans woman can play elite sport. And that's still the case um, with a lot of the different professional sports that are played here in Australia, but also overseas as well. Like Renee Richards, for example, I think back in the late 1970s, early 1980s, she had to go to court in order to be able to play any form of women's tennis. And a lot of people forget cases like that where... People have had to literally get in and fight legally for their own rights. Now, with an Australian example, Hannah Mouncey with the AFL, that one's grabbed such a huge level of discussion, controversy, but also I think it's been a reflection of humanity as well because Hannah and a lot of the different people who have focused on her particular case so many of them have gone from being, well, okay, it's um, a sporting instance where, okay, she, she mightn't be um, of the same stature as a lot of other women, but like her talent, her ability to engage with other players, like so many of the different players that she's not only been with on the same team, but also like played against, they've come out in support of her. And at the same time, like a number of people who have also said, well, okay, Hannah's changed my perspective on trans people more broadly. 
while she hasn't been allowed to play at the elite level, she's definitely been one of the, the legends of the game when it comes to inducing inclusion and promoting it. There's a lot of power in sport, as we saw, you know, rugby players pushing for the uh, anthem to be changed. There's also comments that sports people have made that have been very divisive. And the two people I'm thinking of is, you know, Israel Folau. I don't like to give Israel Folau a lot of oxygen. And then the legend of, of Margaret Court, you know, that name comes up again as well. I mentioned those two because of the need to have anti-discrimination laws in this country. It is so, so important. And all the religious freedoms bills that are on foot at the moment seek to kind of claw that back to allow people to be able to... Practising their faith means that in doing so, they, you know, accidentally incite hate, then that's allowed. Or accidentally incite violence, then that's allowed. And we cannot have a situation like that in Australia, can we? No, we can't. And I think that if we revert to that situation, we are going to see, and I hate to say it, we are going to see a lot more people either being murdered or we're going to see them taking their own lives or self-harming. And a lot of them are going to be kids. Like, I'm, I know that some people will say, that's fear-mongering. Oh, no, that's not going to happen. We only need to look at history to see that that has happened. And it will happen again if a number of these different, like, regulations are stripped away. A lot of these discrimination provisions are stripped away. Well, because it gives people, in their minds, it gives them permission. There are no laws there to make this a criminal act to be able to say these things, so I'm just going to go and say it. The impact and the consequence of that is that somebody is self-harming or worse, taking their own life because of the things that you've said. Yeah, and in the, the heat of some of these debates, we often forget that we're all human. A number of years ago, uh, down there in Parliament House in Canberra, the member for Leichhardt, Warren Inch, told me, he said, Kate, if I cut you, you'd bleed. You're human. I'm human. How can I judge you in any other way than what I'd want to be judged myself? And that is all that you or I are asking for. We're wanting to be treated like everybody else. And that means that we don't have to experience this sort of trauma where we're basically being told, oh, you're transgender, you're going to hell. Or you're a lesbian, you're going to hell. Or your children are of the devil. Yeah, exactly. How damaging is that to grow up thinking that you're the offspring of... Yeah, I just can't even... Yeah, and that's the, the level of debate that people regularly forget. They forget the impact that those words can have. Because it feeds into your identity then, doesn't it? Yeah. And, you know, you, you, if you're hearing those things from the world, you don't have any sort of sense of belonging. You don't feel like you belong anywhere. Yeah, and people do say, oh, like, if you don't believe that particular religion, why are you taking any notice of it? You can't escape some of this language. There's no saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That particular phrase has been proven so many different times to be so incorrect. We, we continue to think that that is like um, something that won't hurt people. Have you been discriminated against by doctors? Yes. During your transition? Yes. Uh, there's been different times where I've been 
uh, like when I was starting out, for example, there were different uh, doctors where I asked, well, like, look, I'm going through all of these different things. I've been feeling this dysphoria for, for quite some time. I need to get professional medical help to make it so that I'm not feeling um, as heavily depressed or I mean, as heavily anxious, for example. And yeah, different times, like um, I was told, oh, well, I'm not really all that experienced in regards to any of that kind of stuff. Oh, you shouldn't be feeling that. Oh, but they're a GP. They're trained for that. Well, they, they should be able to direct you. They should be able to help. Well, part of it. But again, it goes back to the whole training issue as well, because we think that GPs know everything. In reality, they're what like um, uh, their name actually suggests. They're general practitioner. They're jack of all trades when it comes to medicine. So they've got expertise in multiple different areas. But like, of course, there's going to be different medical issues that come up that they're not going to be trained for. And at the same time, like doctors and nurses, they're just like each and every one of us. Like um, we all have our own perspectives on different things. We've all had our own different experiences and that will mould how like different doctors, how different nurses and other medical specialists interact with various different patients regardless of their background. Because you need to be able to feel safe, otherwise you just don't go. Yeah, and that can have a flow-on effect in relation to other areas of your own health as well. Not only your psychological health. If you're not feeling that you can trust a doctor or trust um, a medical practitioner, you're not going to do different things that, let's say, will help you keep your weight under control or like your diabetes. I've recently learnt that the rates of new HIV infections or notifications is higher for First Nations people because the service delivery is not done in a culturally sensitive way so people just aren't going or the public health messages aren't being delivered in culturally sensitive ways so there's a whole area of the population that aren't getting the health services that is being you know afforded and offered to the rest of the population and I just think that is just mind-blowing. There's just something fundamentally wrong there. And that has a flow-on effect as well, because that impacts life expectancy. It impacts the, the willingness of, um, of people and also the accessibility to it as well in relation to education, in relation to so many different things. And we so often forget that, like First Nations people here in Australia, this is a rich culture. It is 80,000 years young. And you just go like, there's so much that could be learned. And there's also so much that medical people could be learning, that our politicians could be learning. I know that there's so many different things that I'd like to learn more in regards to the LGBTI community amongst First Nations people, not just contemporaneously, but also like going back there's so many opportunities there as well. We need to be listening and engaging with our entire First Nations communities more. But on top of that, and going back to the LGBTI community and Mardi Gras, this is an area that we need to focus on as well, because there's so many uh, First Nations people who are part of our community, and they don't often feel as welcomed and accepted and as valued as what they should be. There have been people, a certain section of the LGBTIQA plus community who have felt excluded over the decades. And this year, the theme is rise. And it's about why are you rising this year for Mardi Gras? 
a lot of the people who are rising, you know, for the first time have the confidence to rise this year because of the year that 2020 was and everybody that have found their voice for the first time or given a platform for the first time or given the ear of the country or the ear of the world for the first time. And this year at Mardi Gras, because the theme is rise, we are seeing a lot of attention given to and a lot of a focus on Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter. Because until Black Lives Matter and Trans Lives Matter, all lives can't matter. And to have leaders of this country say, oh, but all lives matter. I mean, that hurt. That really hurt to hear the Deputy Prime Minister say in front of the cameras, all lives matter. It was like, did you not learn anything? You know, and they, these are the lead. This is why the Uluru Statement from the Heart is so important because it's about truth telling, truth telling by our leaders. You know, so when we hear, you know, that the, the theme of Mardi Gras this year is rise, it is so important that we do rise together as a community, as a community of allies as well as a queer community, because inclusion and diversity is about harmony, <laughs> isn't it, Kate? It is. And for me, this particular theme, it means so much to me in so many different ways. I want to rise for the people who can't, who don't feel as if they can, who have never felt that they can truly be themselves. I live out and proud, partially because I want people to be able to see that within themselves, that they can rise up, that they can be more than what they think they can be. And we all can be. We can all learn. We're all learning now. This conversation that you and I have had, I've learned so much. And my my education has risen as a result of that. But like, I think that that comes back to a key issue though. We're not learning as much of the First Nations histories in relation to multiple demographics like LGBTI, in relation to women's issues, in relation to everything when you think about it, than what we could. And as a result of that, we haven't been what we can truly be. And until we realise that, will never be the nation that we can potentially be. Kate, you are so incredibly articulate. And, you know, we have these conversations, like you say, not to make anyone ashamed or not to make anybody feel guilty, but just so that we can walk together into the future where everybody feels included and loved and the freedom to be able to love who you, who you want to love and live your authentic self and live in a gender-affirming way. You know, that, that's all we want. Yeah. I think that we're gradually getting there. The number of changes that we've had over the course of like um, the past five years alone, like marriage equality, for example, the, the level of engagement that we're having like with different medical communities and others, there are changes afoot and also in the workplace as well. I think that as we move forward, there's going to be questions that come up and as a result of like everything that we do, we're just going to find more questions. The more answers we find, the more questions we're going to have, the more we're going to grow. And the more we do that, the closer we will come to true equality. What a beautiful way to end. Kate, I feel like we have been embraced during this conversation by our ancestors, our First Nations ancestors, and also the elders of our queer community that have gone before, because we, we, we stand on their shoulders, don't we? to have these conversations and it's so important because we want to be able to heal and we want people to be able to live their authentic selves in a safe way. 
And when we rise together, we're able to live our true selves. If you or anyone you know are affected by any of the issues raised in this podcast, don't go it alone. Please call Lifeline on 13 11 14.